This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. Can I introduce myself? My name's Owen. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And if you've not been here before, welcome. You're so welcome. I hope that you have a great morning. If you're watching online, either live or retrospectively, you're so welcome as well. We hope that you get a lot out of the service this morning. So uh, this morning, uh, we are continuing our series on uh, where do we see Christ at work in our lives. And it's part of a series that Claire, uh, sorry, that I've been doing. And Claire's been doing another series asking the question, what is God like? So we are running with two box sets. And you you can listen to all of our content if you have missed any of it on our podcast. So you can, wherever you get your podcasts, go for the Seven Venue podcast. We've got an All You Can Eat podcast, and then we've got several independent uh, series as well that you can listen to. But it, also you can watch all of our stuff on YouTube as well. So yeah, if you've missed anything you want to follow up again, do go to our YouTube account. And if you feel like liking it, you can like it as well. If you want to like our Google, while, while we're on the subject, if you want to like our Google or re- leave a review on Google, that's great as well. It's just part of our outreach to the community. Um, so today I am looking at our series of where we see Christ at work in the world. And um, if you've listened to any of the talks I've done in this series, you'll, you'll have heard one uh, called Christ is not Jesus' surname. And that's because it's his title. And uh, this leap of faith that the earliest Orthodox Christians made was that the eternal divine presence of God was in this man called Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, and we see that. We see him at work. You were singing songs about this earlier on. I don't know if you noticed in the lyrics to the songs, you were talking about Christ Jesus, the Christ Jesus who was pre-existed before all things. Now, there's a lot of scripture uh, that we could refer to in the New Testament that backs all of this up. In Acts 2.36, we see that the Apostle Peter says, So all the people of Israel should know this truly. God has made Jesus, the man that you nailed to the cross, both Lord and Christ. In, in Colossians 1.15-17, the Apostle Paul says that the Son, that is Christ Jesus, is the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him everything holds together. So we've got Peter, we've got Paul, two of the great fathers of the church. We've also got John, who was writing a little bit later. John wrote the account that we know as John, and also the book that we call Revelation. John wrote this in John 1, 1 to 3. And we sung it earlier on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Christ Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. The three most influential followers of Jesus believed that Jesus of Nazareth was God, was the Christ in whom everything holds together. But what does that mean? Well, let me share with you a brief metaphor. In the 20th century, scientists discovered that everything in the universe at its subatomic level is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So everything in me at its subatomic level is full of protons, electrons, and neutrons. Same with you. Same with this building. Same with the planet that we're standing on. Same with the stars that bring warmth to our bodies. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. They hold everything together. Now in the same way, perhaps with less scientific insight, Peter, Paul, and John, and all the other people that held that Jesus was the Christ, 
were making a similar profound and insightful comment. They were saying that the divine life force of the universe, that is Christ Jesus, is in all things and holds all things together. They were saying that in all of history, not just human history, not just archaeological history, not just prehistoric history, not just geologic history, not just astrophysic history, but all of history, including before what we call the Big Bang, which scientists think is the beginning of the known universe. All things hold together in Christ Jesus. You might say that all things are soaked in the divine presence of Christ Jesus. Now that's really hard to understand. It's hard to metaphorize. It's hard to allegorize. It's hard to just describe in a way that people can understand because it's how do you describe the indescribable? How do you do that? And well, Paul and Peter and John used inspired words to try and describe that. But they, they believed that the divine DNA is literally in everything and that we can experience it in our everyday life. Now, just turn to the person next to you and say, the divine DNA is in you. <laughs> How controlling. <laughs> I can't believe I just got you to do that. You're like, what did I just say? <laughs> the Bible says you're made in the image of God. It means that you're made in the image of Christ. You look like a mini Christ. You are made in God's image. That's what the Bible says. It says that human beings are like gods. Okay, they are made in God's image. Doesn't mean we hold the same authority as the divine Christ Jesus, but we hold the same DNA, the same spiritual DNA. We look like God because we're made in the image of God. Everyone does. And not just Christians, by the way. Not just Christians. You look around you and you'll see everyone is made in the image of God. So what does it look like to see Christ Jesus in all things? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. We, for our second occasion, we're going to be inviting a guest to come and share how they have seen Christ Jesus in their interactions with people and experiences that they've had with God, both metaphysical and physical. In other words, both spiritual and supernatural in ways that are invisible and ways that are very visible as well. So my guest this morning is my friend Dan Maurice. Would you give him a big round of applause? Dan, good to see you, mate. Thanks for coming. Have a, have a microphone there. And uh, Dan, thanks so much for agreeing to join us today. Um, if you notice the family resemblance to Emma, not to me, <laughs> Emma is uh, uh, Dan's sister. And, um, and Dan, I'm From whom I've learned everything. Uh, sorry? From whom I've learned everything. There you go. From whom you've definitely learned everything, I agree. So it's all her fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mate, um, first of all, just want to admire the moustache. You look like uh, an RAF Second World War pilot. It looks amazing. Uh, we're so impressed, uh, but, but it's, not, it's not a permanent feature, is it? Or is it? Uh, no, I've been told by my family it's definitely not a permanent feature. Yeah. It's, it's going in six days. <laughs> so, Just tell uh, us about that. Well, um, partly I'm doing it with my good friend Dan Green, uh, who looks as ridiculous as I do. Uh, <laughs> you don't look uh, ridiculous. But I've, I've been lucky to have some, some good female role models in my life, some of whom are here today. Uh, but blokes sometimes struggle to have the more... Uh, 
vulnerable conversations uh, that go deeper than football. So for some reason, I don't know who started it, uh, growing a moustache for a month gives some kind of excuse for blokes to have that kind of like, are you actually okay, mate? chat and so I thought well I'm, I'm, I'm all for that yeah. so uh, obviously 1st of December that's it it's football again for the next 11 months <laughs> uh, but yeah I think um, have you had those conversations yeah I have we're, we're about to have one now we are really two British blokes about to have a vulnerable conversation <laughs> and all this lot of listening so, that's right. let's see not what just this lot but thousands of other people as well probably uh, yeah. <laughs> that's not to kind of you know make you less open yeah, or anything now. like that <laughs> you stay put all right so, um, Dan, we've been talking a lot, as I said, about seeing Christ in all things, okay? And uh, for you, you, life's been about seeing Christ in, in all things. You've seen Christ in many aspects of life. And, but there's some interesting stories that, you know, I'd love you to share today that you actually shared in a book that you wrote, haven't you? Yep. Um, and I just want to just highlight this to you. Did you bring any copies of this, by the way? I bought a few, yeah. Yeah, if you're interested in actually reading Dan's book, Dan wrote this book, was it two years ago? Yep. Two years ago, and um, it's just a great book uh, about his experiences of finding the peacemakers, and some of the stories we're going to be hearing about today are exactly from there. Um, but Dan, your journey over the last few years seemed to begin when you met some Chilean miners. Yep, that's Tell right. Tell us more about that. So I was a teacher at the time, um, and some of you probably know this story, some of you heard me talk about it before, some of you might have completely forgotten and a lot of people seem to have merged it with the story of the rescue of the Thai boys. Uh, so they are two separate events. <laughs> um, although right, one the, of the, the, the Thai boys from the cave system. In, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So when two stories are quite similar, people think, oh, an underground rescue. That's just a thing that happened once in history. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the Chilean miners actually wrote, or sent a message to the rescue divers in Thailand to say, we got out and we're praying for you guys. So that's, that's quite amazing, nice. isn't it? But yeah, I was... Um, uh, well, in 2010 when it happened, I was teaching and I saw this story in the news and got sucked into it like everyone did. Um, and there's two things that I loved about it. One was that um, it was a good story. <laughs> it was some good news in the news. Um, I actually think the papers got onto it because it was obviously really bad news and that's what they love. And then when they found out that they're all alive, by that point they're committed and they're like, oh, we're going to have to report this now. It's a story that ends well. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And it did end well. It was a, it was a, it was a brutal 69 days underground. Um, the chances of them getting out alive were almost non-existent. And they did. It was amazing. Um, but also the miners spoke about a sort, a sort of spiritual encounters they had on the ground, the way they sort of forged peace in a very difficult environment. And I thought there were some really, really profound lessons to be learned, which, again, the papers didn't quite know how to cover. And I thought, this is so exciting. And they weren't deliberately turning it down, because you've got to report, if one of the miners is standing in front of a camera saying, we met Jesus underground, you can't just sort of shoot that away. So like, ah, oh, hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh, So it was sort of like, not quite sure what to cover. And actually some of the papers did hint at it. The Times called it the miracle of San Jose, the miracle called it salvation. So we sort of hints about something was going on here. You know, you decide, not quite sure what to report. And so I wrote to one of the miners because um, I wanted to find out more. And you got a response? What's that? You got a response? Yeah, it was, it was remarkable. I didn't, you know, it was a bit of a long shot. And it, it wasn't that I was like an ambassador or a world-class journalist or, you know, Prince William or something. I was just a geography teacher. <laughs> we're like, I'm kind of interested. And yeah, Jose Enriquez uh, wrote back. I wrote to his publisher and said, could you forward this letter to Jose? Which is a bit of a long shot. But yeah, got an email saying... Here's my number, call me when you land. 
Wow. So, so you went over. Off we go, yeah. And you met him. Tell us the story. So it's interesting, when you talked about seeing Christ in all in different places, I thought, like, immediately when I met Jose, he had a sort of peace about him, which was, there was a tangible peace about him, which is difficult to describe, really, until you're there. But um, I got the, um, so that's, that's Ross, my translator. Um, and often when you talk about peace or being in the presence of God or sort of prayerful moments, uh, you can sort of, you know, you can create a nice tranquil environment. You have some nice music on, you feel safe and relaxed, you sit in your favorite chair, whatever. Um, but actually he was in the most stressful situation possible. <laughs> and then in that situation, he had something of the peace of God. And I found that profound. And actually you could just sense it when I met him. Um, and, uh, and Ross and Louise who were with me said the same thing. They were like, this guy is, um, there was almost like a sort of bomb-proof peace that come what may, whatever happened, he was trusting in God, he was calm, mm. um, and he had that sort of clarity. He could, he could hear, from, hear from God. It wasn't, and I think when the mind first collapsed, he had this real conviction. In fact, he had a dream. Um, so his, his grandmother had a dream and passed it on to him. Like, he was quite old, so his grandmother must have been like 100. <laughs> um, and said, Jose's going to enter a dark place and be be a light in that dark place or something like that and say it's like it was a bit of a weird message but when when the mind collapsed he was like oh that's this thing right. so he just knew god's got a plan so in he's this. in the mind it's collapsed yeah what what, what happens what's what's his experience there so all he said all the miners were you know 33 but the majority were very very stressed and so the shockwave when the, the mind collapsed there was what geologists call a mega block that was twice the mass of the Empire State Building just sort of shunted down into the mine wow. and sealed off everything. And that sort of shockwave knocked them off their feet. It's like a hurricane underground. So they all sort of slammed against the rocks and God. they sort of crawled into the, they call it the refuge, like the sort of safe place, which was, a, was like the size of a cupboard. Yeah. It was the structurally sound part. Uh, and they were sort of bleeding. And the, you know, to begin with, they thought, because there's lots of collapses all over the mine, and so the chances of all of them being in a safe place were almost none. So when they, they were all present, they were like, oh my goodness, we're all here. How did that happen? So there's a bit of a feeling of like, there's something special going on. But they were just traumatized, as you would be. Yeah. And obviously they knew how deep they were. It was one of the deepest mines in Chile. And they were like, there's no way we're getting out. And so it's almost harder. Like you had this sort of initial like, oh, thank God we're alive. And then that feeling of like, I think I'd rather be crushed than yeah. just slowly die of starvation. Yeah. So there was a lot of despair. And Jose just quite quickly was like, it's going to be okay. And he sort of led them in prayer. Wow. And I think actually one of the main sort of, um, um, sort of leaders, he, w he wasn't officially a leader, but you know when some people in a group are like the joker, the you know, the guy that just stands up and is like, okay, everybody. And that guy was um, a guy called Mario Sepulveda, uh, Super Mario. Really? He is one who's paid by Antonio Banderas in the film, if you've seen it. And he was like, Jose, lead us in prayer. And so Jose had been kind of standing at the back, just keeping everyone calm. And so they all turned to him. Yeah. And he was like, okay, if, if we're doing this, we're going to do it. So he got them all to kneel down. And he said, um, his opening prayer was, God, we're not the best of men, but have mercy on us. Yeah. And they were always, well, I remember being quite struck that I'm like, if that was in Britain, would have been like, I'm really angry with the mining company. God shouldn't let this happen. Right. Who stole the emergency rations? And there was none of that bravado. It was just like, you know what? We're, we're throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. And he said, and actually I spoke to other miners afterwards, 
And they all said there was something that happened in that moment. Like, it felt like there was a real, a real peace. And they used to describe Jesus as minor number 34. Really? Like he was with us. Wow. And that was kind of a, a sense, but it was also quite practical. And so there were sort of manifestations of that that were quite remarkable. So Jose prayed for, they had no clean water, so he prayed for one of the industrial tanks that was full of chemicals. It was obviously water to cool the machines, but like it was a sort of orange film on top. And he prayed for that tank and said, God can clean this. And then they were drinking from it, and they later tested that tank, and they said the water was clean. Why? And one of the other tanks that he didn't pray for wasn't. And then the other one that was really remarkable, um, so he had a friend called Omar, who I also met later on. I think Omar's on the um, screen, Omar Regedas. Um, and he, uh, he was, a couple of weeks in, he started, his chest was tight, and he, he was basically having what seemed like a heart attack. And he thought, that was it. Yeah. And he'd been to this park where we actually met him uh, just before the collapse and with his whole family, and he felt like God had given him that sort of goodbye moment. And then as the others started praying for him, he just had this conviction like, no, he's like, God wouldn't lead us into this situation. Uh, he wouldn't have given me this conviction mm -hmm. just to abandon me. Mm. So he started praying with real faith for healing. Mm. And, um, and Jose and the others were praying for him, and this sort of cool breeze just swept up from the bottom of the mine. And his breathing was restored. Right. And they were like, that's weird. So they went to look for the source of the breeze, just held up a lighter, and sort of using the angle of the flame, followed the breeze down the mine. And it just sort of disappeared. Right. But bearing in mind it's like permanently in the 30s, yeah. and it gets hotter as you go down into the mine. Yeah. So a sort of uncharacteristically cool breeze that would just sweep up yeah. the moment they prayed and restore his health. And Jose spoke to people afterwards, and there was all that, you know, it was a little bit of a like, it could be a trapped pocket of air that was released with fortuitous timing from mm. a freak rockfall. Mm. You know, people are trying to piece it together. Yeah. You know, it could be true, but... Whatever it was, it made Yeah, it those sorts of moments. And there was something like that on an almost daily basis. Wow. To the moment they were rescued, even, you know, the drill bit deviating off course to the right place. And just something constantly. So Jose came out of it being like, there was something going on here. Yeah. And even the skeptics didn't, you know, people might not say that was the presence of Jesus, but and I quite like the wonder of it. Mm. Like, even if you don't know what it was, you know, it's either an extraordinary set of coincidences. Right. But actually, for me, I didn't want to sort of force it. I just wanted to ask them. I said, you know, what's your story? And he was like, God was with us. Yeah. And there was a, he finished actually in, in the interview, and I've finished this in the book, spoiler alert. There was a, um, in Psalm 139, it says, it's a lovely little refrain that says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And Jose said, and he was almost welling up as he said it, he said, we made our bed in the depths, and he was there. Really amazing. I, I mean, for anyone who doesn't re remember this um, mind collapse, uh, when was it, 2010? Then just go and Google it. It's just an incredibly moving story, isn't it? There is a, I made a little film of the interview, so I put that up at the end. Is that, is that on YouTube as well? Yep. Great. Thanks. So talking of going to the depths, um, a bit of a, a segue into your own story of how you've kind of gone to the depths in your own life and where you found Christ in the more difficult moments. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so when I was doing these interviews and writing the book, I basically saw remarkable providence for years. Just, I felt totally out of my depth, but really... It just everything just worked really well. I had the most amazing interviews. God looked after me. I was in some pretty dangerous situations and always made it out 
like someone's looking after me, right through to publishing. Um, so contextually, this was in your writing of this book, you interviewed different people in different yeah. scenarios. Yeah, so all over the world, yeah. different peacemakers and situations of adversity or conflict. And it was amazing. And I almost got used to, almost took it for granted that God's got my back. Yeah. And then after the book came out, I had loads of interviews and it was, it was amazing. And then um, I, I was kind of, I was pretty tired because it had been a long old road and I was looking forward to a bit of a holiday. So just to be clear, you'd been a teacher, you gave up your job as a teacher. Yeah. And then you decided to write a book on stories of people who were peacemakers in the world and you travelled around the world meeting these people off in your off your own back with your own resources yeah and but you always felt like god had your back in other words you had had an incredible provision for your ability to go and do this yeah. you wrote the book yeah then what happened so then i was um i went away to see my other sister and see some friends in london and i felt i'd i'd thought i'd maybe had covid the week before but it kind of been fine yeah um, but i felt a little bit dizzy and i remember going to see i think it was the latest james bond film and been I felt a bit carsick just watching the car chase, right. <laughs> just a bit weird. And I came out of the cinema and I decided to walk home because I felt like I needed a bit of fresh air. I just felt really tired walking up the hill. And I thought nothing of it. I'm like, maybe, you know, people feel a bit funny for a couple of weeks. Mm. But that just went on for ages. I was just exhausted and felt quite dizzy in a sort of brain fog. And after a couple of months of that, um, and the advice generally of any kind of post-viral fatigue is you just have to rest. I was really bad at that. Um, in fact, a couple of friends in this back, the space of a week had the same sort of prophetic word three times, which is from Psalm 23 when it says, he makes you lie down in green pastures. And someone said, it's funny how he makes you lie down. That's a bit weird and forceful, but it's actually for your benefit. And I had that three times. It's a really unusual um, phrase. Anyway, I was really disobedient and I ignored it. And I um, actually tried to go for a run one day because I'm like, I'm so tired of being tired. I'm going to prove to myself I've got energy. So I went for a run and I just, I remember at the top of a hill feeling just total despair and like a sense of real dread. It was horrible. Um, so I came home quite scared. Yeah. Was that like a panic attack? Yeah. I don't know. I, so I had no words for this because I'd never experienced like, I'd had more right. like fear in dangerous yeah. situations. But when people had talked about sort of mental health issues in the past, I'd always yeah. thought... It's not, it's not you. It's yeah, not, yeah, exactly. It's not me. And I'd also... You just can't relate to it. And I didn't... I don't want to discount it. Yeah. But you can't... I think sometimes you can't help but feel a little bit like, oh, you're fine. Cheer up. <laughs> and when you've been in that situation, like, oh, suddenly I'm like, okay, this is, right. this is different. What, what was it about that experience? I, I mean, I've, when I was younger, I experienced panic attacks as well. But what, what was it about that experience that paralyzed you almost what was it i think for me it was the unknown it right. wasn't rational so i think when you have a rational fear of something so like and parts of the journey yeah they were actually very dangerous and so i'm like cool that's fine i'm i'm being i'm here in the desert with wolves that i should be scared mm. and then when i get out i'm fine that's mm. you know that's li that's life um but uh, that was a moment when there was no, i was fine there was nothing wrong with me and yeah. so this dread just felt like out of nowhere right so you were in a non-threatening situation you had yeah. just been to the cinema you were in Bristol yeah and, and so you felt overwhelmed with anxiety I didn't understand it and I thought is it spiritual is it something sinister hmm. so I tried the normal being a good Christian that's probably your first thought wasn't it? <laughs> yeah the and devil I do, attacking you right <laughs> I genuinely believe <laughs> yeah. that some there are some cultures that totally over spiritualize everything everything spiritual right. 
than actually some things are medical. And there's some cultures probably closer to our own that think everything's medical. Right. And sometimes it's spiritual. So I'm yeah. like, I'll just hit everything. I'll yeah. pray, I'll fast, Good I'll idea. go yeah. to people who are gifted in the supernatural. I will t- go to the doctor. Good. I'll try yeah. whatever supplement someone on Facebook is recommending. I probably yeah. went too far. I tried everything. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's like it from people who are great. So, uh, is it, were you doing this typical men thing where you go, I've got to find a solution, let's, slu- let's solve this, let's, 100%. let's engineer this? Terribly, because actually a few of my close friends and family were just like, look, just wait this out, trust God, stop trying to fix it obsessively. Right. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Thanks then, for that. Yeah, yeah. Google would suck me in. And, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, and so I think the hardest thing was just a total unknown. I didn't get it. And I, I didn't want to admit I had long COVID because I'd heard, I'd read the stories in the news. I'm like, oh, that sounds bleak. I'm not, yeah. I'm not having that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to go through. No, no. <laughs> yeah, but after <laughs> a year, I'm like, okay, this isn't going away. Right. Um, and so, and there, you know, there isn't. It's a new thing. Yeah. There isn't a magical cure yet. And there's a lot of research going. You know, people mm. are getting better. Mm. The, there's hope on the horizon, mm. but it's not like other things where there's an obvious cure, you take a pill, it goes away, job done. Yeah. This is a bit like, huh, hmm. yeah. and that's discomforting. Yeah. And you're not out of it yet, are you? No, I would say recently, actually, uh, praise the Lord, I'm feeling a bit better, yeah. um, but no, definitely not back to normal. Mm. Um, so I've kind of learned to live with it, um, but it is, and it, it, it wasn't expecting it, but it is a, a little bit like the Chilean miners. <laughs> It is just a dark valley, yeah. and I, one of the things I thought I learned was that, you know, the Christian life has moments of extraordinary breakthrough and providence, like I shared, but it always has moments when you, d- you don't know, you know, it feels like the doors of heaven are closed, mm. and you don't really understand why something isn't happening. And actually, when, as I've read the scriptures, I, f- I found it's the same, that's the normal Christian life, and people who had extraordinary breakthrough also had seasons of, like, why isn't it working? Mm. Even Jesus. Mm. You know, he saw miracles, you know, various parts of scripture that say everybody was healed. Um, and nothing could touch him. Not mm. storms, not demons, not sickness. Mm. But, you know, he lost his cousin. Mm. And he lost his father. And his family thought he was crazy. Mm. And Nazareth, you know, his people tried to kill him. They were so angry that he basically wanted to love the other guys. <laughs> you know, he told the story about, you know, even Naaman the Syrian was healed. And they were like... Ugh. Mm. try to throw him off a cliff and you're like that sort of rejection that sort of suffering that sort of like he didn't have it easy mm. and I just think that's the normal that's that you know you don't become a Christian to escape you know to live a nice happy easy life where you so circumnavigate all difficulties mm. actually and the sort of um Psalm 23 has been quite key for me throughout this whole journey um and the line uh when you walk through the valley of shadow of death, you will, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Mm. I find really powerful. It's mm. not like you circumnavigate the valley or he parachutes you out of the valley and puts you in a nice, comfortable space. Um, he, he's like, you're going to go through the valley, mm. but I'm with you. Do you and that's the difference. Is, is that your experience? 100%, yeah. Wow. Um, how, how are you experiencing Christ in the valley? I mean, you, it seems to intimate that maybe maybe it doesn't feel like Christ is with you in the valley, and yet you're still holding on to the idea that he is. is oh, that, 100%. Is so I, I actually feel like I've heard God quite clearly. Yeah. So like that example with, um, and I'm, I'm quite lucky in that I, I love praying with people and for people. I love encouraging people mm. and receiving it. I, I just I love prayer and the prophetic. And 
that sort of ministry, that's how I often connect with God. So some people love music, can be lost in worship for ages. Mm-hmm. I, I love to pray with people and to hear talks, podcasts, that kind of stuff. I'm quite cerebral, so I'm like, give me some, <laughs> some scripture. Um, and so I've been lucky, and I feel like God's spoken quite clearly in moments. Just like when someone brings you a really obscure verse, and then someone else phones you up the next day of the same verse, and then it's in your daily, daily Bible reading, and then you meet someone in church, and like, I just had a dream last night of this, and you're like, okay, wow. Um, so I feel like I've, I've heard clearly from God in various ways, but not at no stage has anyone said you're going to get better tomorrow yeah. so that was a bit of a funny thing um, so people say what do you want prayer for and I'm like healing now mm. and they'll be like mm. and they'll be like I feel like God wants to say he wants to teach you something in this and I'm like <laughs> don't you just love that kind of encouragement <laughs> or you're just going to get better tomorrow <laughs> so, I don't, so in some ways I feel like I've been well prepared for it but also um, there's a and again this is another um, I think it was Chris had this word for me when I was praying one day about divine acceptance mm. And a friend who lives in Coventry, DX, who had the same, he had a word about divine resignation. And then, um, and then it was, John Mark Home was speaking, I think at the Vineyard Conference, and Emma mentioned it when I looked it up, and it was just, this was all the same week, and he had talked about what the ancients called, um, um, like, indifference. But he says it's not a very good translation, it all means sort of that sort of, like, acceptance. And so the story that really captures it for me in the scriptures is in Daniel 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue and he's like bow down to my statue or I'll throw you in the fire and they say you can throw us in the fire and our God can rescue us but if he doesn't we're still not bowing down to your statue (laughs) and I love that because it captures that sense of like we know God can save us but if he doesn't we're still we're still all in Mm. And there's that sort of divine acceptance. It's actually quite liberating when you're like, you know what, I'm not going to hold God to ransom. I'm not going to be entitled and insist on X, Y, and Z. I'm going to come to God and say, you know what, whatever you want to do, if I'm healed tomorrow, or if you want to teach me in this, or if there's something else you want to do, I, I'm, whatever you want to do, I'm in. And that's a sort of surrendering position. I find that really helpful. It's actually quite liberating because then suddenly you almost don't fear the fear or the depression or the sickness. You're like, if God's in this and he's with me, and your sort of countenance changes from like help get me out to like hmm, what can I learn I've actually learned a couple of really key things I think one is just solidarity so like I said before before you've really experienced a test and the Bible often talks about testing and trials like Jesus was tested uh, like the rest of us and they use that word of like forging a metal like you test it or like when you know like, like a someone who tests Land Rovers, just goes and trashes them, see how much you can break it. That's that sort of testing. Um, and I feel like until you've experienced that, you, it's quite difficult to relate to other people in that situation. Whereas now when someone says they're going through a bit of a mental health crisis, I'm like, oh my goodness. And my first reaction is not how can I fix it. My first reaction is just like, wow, I'm really sorry. Mm. And I find that really helpful. And I, I noticed when people said to me, you're fine. When I, and it's something I used to do all the time. <laughs> and I suddenly like, oh my goodness, it must be so irritating. When I said, you know, and someone said, how are you doing? I'm like, I've actually had a bad day. And they go, well, you look fine. Everyone said that to me. Like, yeah. friends, it, it's just the universal thing that British people say to cheer someone up. It's actually quite invalidating because it, it sounds comforting. But it kind of sounds like, are you sure you're not just making this up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like most issues that people are facing are not visible. Yeah. Like if you've arms been sawn off, that's quite visible, but yeah. like that's quite rare. Yeah. Most people it's kind of internal. Yeah. And if you've learned to like put on a brave face, then yeah. it's not that clear. Um, but I found when people said, that's hard, but you're doing well, 
Mm. That's really encouraging. And I noticed, I'm looking back at my life, when other people came to me and had a bad day, I'd often say, I'll be all right. Yeah. And then they'd be like, they don't have to fight, no, it's not okay. Yeah. Whereas if you just say, oh, I'm really sorry, that's a nightmare. Mm. But well done. Yeah. Then often they cheer themselves up and be like, well, thanks. Yeah. You know, it's going to be fine. But I felt like you have to sort of identify and affirm someone's emotion first. Yeah. And I've really learned that through experiencing it. And I think the final thing I learned is um, there's that little scripture in the beginning of uh, Romans 12. It talks about being renewed by, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm. And um, so I've done a bit of reading around this because I think when you kind of, uh, I did the sort of standard CBT thing and you know, sort of to learn how to think happy thoughts. When you mean cognitive behavioural therapy? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. if you go to the doctor and say, I'm struggling, they give you some meds and put you on CBT as a standard yeah. thing. Yeah. And uh, it's actually been quite helpful. Um, God bless my doctor. But I kind of did a bit of a deeper dive because I'm like, what's going on here? And I found, one of the things I found really encouraging as I follow like neuroscience is really just starting to catch up with what's really been the gospel message all along, which is that... You, I mean, this, this, the examples in scripture of lives transformed are extraordinary. Mm. So you look at the Apostle Paul, for, ex, for example, he was like this mad, angry, zealous, violent, <laughs> hating sort of terrorist, essentially. Zeal is, when he said he described as a zealous, that's mm. like a sort of um, hyperlink to someone like Phineas who has killed people. <laughs> and then he went to become the most compassionate, most loving, most forgiving, uh, you know, man of God. And you're like, what happened on the Damascus Road? And we, you, know, you get used to those stories, but actually up until probably 20 years ago, the sort of Freudian psychology idea was that whatever's happened to you in your childhood is basically set you. If you're traumatized, that's you, you'll never recover, everything is your parents' fault. You know, if you're depressed, you're depressed, that's you, just manage it. And the idea that you can completely change your thoughts, your mind, your attitude, your experiences mm. was kind of frowned upon. Whereas actually more recently, the sort of, the idea of neuroplasticity has been actually really with the advent of functional MRI and seeing how people were changed. And there's this bit of understanding like, actually, wow, people's, people's brains really can change their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And it gets harder, but actually, so for me, one of the big hopes was not that in days when I find it difficult, mm -hmm even if I haven't managed to change this, that, or the other, mm. I know it's possible, mm. and that is so liberating. You hope. Whereas if you tell people, like, this is just you forever, right. it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Whereas if people know you can change, God can redeem situations, mm. like a memory which is traumatic or an experience which is traumatic, you can learn to not be, you can unlearn fear, basically. Mm. Right. I found that, um, even if you haven't worked out how, to know it's possible, I find so exciting. Yeah. And there was a, um, probably my, my favorite book to recommend on this is by a lady called Jenny Allen, who wrote Get Out of Your Head. And she starts with that bit at the beginning of Romans 12, and she has a four-word exposition of Romans 12, which is, and that bit that says, be transformed by renewing of a mind, she says, that means it's possible. And I'm like, such a great summary. And the rest of the book is sort of exploring it. But for me, just knowing that God can, even in your worst moment, when you're like, there's no way out of this, knowing God can change it. Mm -hmm. It might take a lot of effort, it might take some time, but it's never hopeless. Yeah. That is so helpful. So good. So Dan, you've been a Christian for a long time, haven't you? Like most of your life, am I right? Yeah. I, would you say that you're still experiencing Christ even in the midst of the challenges that you've been facing recently? Yeah, 100%. And actually, um, 
If, I, if you could offer me a really easy, comfortable life or a challenging life with Christ, I would take the latter, mm. 100%. Mm. Um, and actually, I think that's true of a lot of relationships. Mm. Uh, so why not in our relationship with God? Like often, the sort of bond that you have with a friend when you've been in battle together mm. or with your, you know, your soulmate once you've kind of been through a real difficult journey and you've learned to love and trust one another or you've forgiven someone or those kind of battles you face, you often go closer and have a deeper bond and a deeper love yeah. through adversity than the sort of like happy, easy times. Yeah. And so I think how much more in your relationship with God when you learn to trust him, mm. when, and there's that scripture that says, I can't do anything without Christ. I could do nothing without him. And I'm always thought like, well, I could do something. I got, I got dressed this morning, you know what I mean? But when you hit a stage where you're like, I really feel like I can't do anything, actually in those moments when you really lean on God, it does bring out a depth and a, a beauty in your relationship with God. And I'm like, I think, at the, if you'd asked me a year ago, I just say I want this to be over. Whereas now I think it's worth it. Mm. Wow, that's something. It really is, man. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being so open and honest with us and vulnerable. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate you, um, you know, just sharing this journey with us that you've been on because it, it's not like it's a kind of, hey, hey, victory, I got through it and now everything's fine. Actually, you're still going through it and actually you, you, you're a man full of hope in, yeah. in spite of that. So we're really grateful to you for sharing us this and sharing it with us. I'm sure it will help many of us in our own work um, through life. Um, we ran out of time in terms of being able to do any reflection and contemplation, but you did suggest Psalm 23 yeah. as a contemplation for people. Um, and if you're not familiar with contemplation, it's about taking a verse of scripture or some verses of the Bible and actually just going over them and rereading them. So I just want to encourage you, we were going to spend 10 minutes doing this, but when you have a moment in today or this week, take 10 minutes just to settle down by yourself with the Bible open in front of you or your Bible app in front of you and just read through Psalm 23. And just read through it. You might want to read it out loud. Invite, invite God to speak to you through it. And see if God highlights one or two of those words in that scripture to you. And just invite God to speak to you. God, what are you saying to me about this this week? You've heard Dan speak. Um, why don't you springboard off that with a meditation and a contemplation on Psalm 23 this week? Dan, you're going to be um, in the cafe area afterwards, right? If people yep. are interested in your book, they can come and talk to you. This is not about promoting Dan's book. It's just a friend of ours who we'd love to, we wanted to uh, invite to share his story with us. So don't feel under any pressure to have his book, but um, it's a good book. Um, <laughs> um, why don't we just pray? Could I just, uh, I always, yeah. I'm, I'm a reader and a writer, so I can't help but do a few book recommendations. <laughs> so just, the, if, you're, if you want some book recommendations on sort of, meeting God in difficult moments or, um, or whatever you call it, counselling, brain training. Uh, those are the three I'd recommend. Switch on Your Brain by Caroline Leaf. She's a neuroscientist. And then Winning the War on Your Mind by Craig Rochelle or Get Out of Your Head by Jenny Allen. I find, if you want an example of people who I think really have nailed this, knowing, knowing the peace and the presence of Christ beyond circumstances, The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom is my favourite book of all time. And actually, I Shall Not Hate by... Isildin Ubolesh, I also love. Um, he's a Gazan doctor, and then that's my book. And then all, if you want podcasts and films and all the stuff I've talked about, they're all on um, that website, lukex.org. And there are more stories of Dan's adventures in meeting the peacemakers, and uh, we haven't been able to share all of those this morning, so do, do look into that. Dan, thanks so much. Would you show your appreciation for Dan?